Hi everybody, Jed Ayers here, and welcome to another episode of The Attic. As you may know, it was an attic in Bremen, Germany, where iGel first got its start 20 years ago. A whole host of famous tech companies started in humble places like attics and garages. With Facebook, it was a dorm room. HP and Amazon started in a garage. And visiting us today in the attic is a very special guest and friend. He just finished up a highly successful eight-year run as the COO at VMware, Sanjay Poonen. For the past three decades, Sanjay Poonen has blazed a trail through tech, ticking the boxes of engineering, product management, sales, marketing, and large company management. In 2013, Sanjay jumped to VMware, where he was tasked with leading their end-user computing business, an underperforming division, and then also ran to Citrix. Under his leadership, it exploded, growing from 300 million to over 1 billion in just three years. He's an industry superstar, particularly adept at driving growth expansions as he did at SAP and most recently at VMware. When Sanjay recently exited VMware, he let everyone know he has a lot of gas left in his tank and promises big plans for the future. We're really excited to have Sanjay Poonin up in the attic today to discuss his illustrious career, and I can't wait to get some hints about where this mover and shaker's next moves might be. Well, hey, Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us here in the attic. We're so excited to have you on the show, talk about tech, talk about leadership, talk about values. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think I first met you in a day I'll never forget. It was in uh, January 2014. We were in Cleveland, and it was a polar vortex. I think the coldest place that I've ever been in my entire life. And uh, we had, I think, over 2,000 people in, uh, in a ballroom in downtown Cleveland. And if I remember correctly, it was actually the first uh, keynote or one of the first keynotes you did as a VMware executive running their end user compute uh, division. So uh, it, it's been a fun to watch you since then and uh, certainly uh, what you've done in terms of scaling that part of the business and what you've done with uh, VMware. But I guess, uh, you know, this is the attic and uh, we love to talk to people about their origin stories. We'll get to the tech and we'll get to uh, your life post VMware, uh, but we want to talk to you about your origin story. And I know, uh, you know, you, uh, you have a special story. I know you're from originally India, Bangalore. Uh, can you talk to us about your childhood and where you grew up? Yeah, sure, Jed. Thank you for that nice, warm introduction. I do remember that cold day in Cleveland. Um, I think it was the MCPC conference, and uh, uh, I was probably in my first 100 days uh, on the job, and I was still learning my way around the water coolers at, at VMware. Congratulations to you and IGEL and all the success you folks are having. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, listen, at the end of the day, what makes the world go around are uh, friendships and, and uh um, I think when we can help each other, so when you ask me to do this, uh, if it can be a help and an inspiration to anybody listening in, in terms of what makes each of our stories unique, what we're all sort of in this journey, learning and teaching, learning and teaching, it's sort of, I describe this as a virtuous cycle. Uh, if you have been successful, it's your obligation to teach others, and then you never stop learning until you die. Uh, so briefly on my uh, history, I came to this country when I was uh, 18 in the late 1980s. And prior to that first 18 years of my life, I grew up in India. Uh, my parents uh, still live in Bangalore, although they spend a little bit more time in the U.S. now as they've gotten older. Uh, but I'm the oldest of four boys. 
my dad was in the Indian Navy uh, for many years, and uh, we were a very close family. Um, I would say the most remarkable thing about my growing up was um, I wasn't very popular in school. I wore thick glasses. People made fun of me. I was probably bullied a fair amount. But the one thing I do remember is this. It didn't rem- matter at all what happened on the, on the playground. Um, I was always loved at home. And I knew that my home was a safe zone from bullying or from anything else. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, there was a good dynamic of competitive rivalry among the siblings. So that was natural. We fought with each other, but we, we are now extremely close friends. But I think that sort of sheltered um, place of sort of solace and fortress, so to speak, is the first message I think I would leave with people which is, you know, it's really tough for children. I mean, they, they, they could be popular, they may not be popular, they feel, deal with cliques, they deal with all kinds of influences in the school. And we have to make sure as parents, um, uh, you know, that we make our homes a safe zone for our children and we protect them from bullying. Bullying's only gotten worse because it's, it may not be in the same form of fighting and punching, but it happens just as badly or worse on, on social media um and you know a lot of people's image is sort of tied up now not just in what people think about them or what people say about them or how they look uh and we've just got to make that such that the growing up years until you know children get their feet at some point in time i was reasonably self-sufficient self-sufficient enough to leave home at around the age of 17 18 and come to a country 10,000 miles away yeah so uh, talk but to I think us about that years. sanjay how did you end up in the united states uh yeah, I mean, it's not a very complicated story. I mean, most, it's sort of, I joke about it. in India, uh, it's a little bit different now, but in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, if you were a high school student, your road divided into two paths, you either became a doctor or an engineer. Um, and not to say that other careers weren't uh, respected, but that's what you, you studied biology and you became a doctor, you studied math and you became an engineer. So I was kind of on that math track, even though my mom uh, is a doctor and was much more of the biological sciences. Uh, and I was going to go to um, the MIT of India, the institute called IIT, Indian Institute of Technology. My uncle, my dad's brother, happens to live lived in Boston and told me there were a few universities that were offering scholarships to international students. And I would say we were lower middle class in India, so certainly very poor by American standards. There's no way I could have afforded any college in the United States. But fortunately, a few universities were offering that. I applied to three schools. I applied to MIT. I applied to Caltech. I got rejected those two. And this little college in Hanover, New Hampshire named Dartmouth happened to take pity on me and and admitted me there and, and gave me a scholarship. The most important part was I got a scholarship because there's no way I could have afforded it. And at that time, I mean, I don't know what the costs were of, of education. It probably was 20, 25,000 all in for the full year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was 98% covered in the last 2%. I could work in the dining hall, which was very good for me to just learn how to work very early in life. And so the whole thing, I'm, you know, I was able to, to, to do it. But it was a lonely first two years because, you know, imagine a teenager coming to the U.S. You're 10,000 miles away from your family. You've grown up in a close family. That family was sort of a fortress to you. And then you leave the family and there's nobody you can call. I mean, there were no cell phones at the time. They were all pay phones. And I remember like, you know, Saturday morning, which was Saturday night, India time at a fixed time, I would have to go down to the pay phone and my parents may call me once every two or three months. It would last all of two minutes because the calls were very expensive. 
Right. Uh, there was no email. Email was just starting to develop in the late 90s. In fact, DARPA was one of the first colleges to, to do it. But, you know, so all of these things that we've taken for granted today, cell phones, emails, uh, there was no place to go on Thanksgiving because uh, like you, I mean, you had nobody you knew. So some family might be nice enough to invite international students to come to their home in Hanover, New Hampshire. So these things all, I think, grow up in individual fast. And I found that the first two years coming to this country were an enormous growing up experience. And I can assure you, there's a world of difference between the temperature in Bangalore, India and Hanover, New Hampshire. It is just, I mean, Cleveland is colder, but Hanover can get really, really cold. So, so I, uh, uh, I, I know, was but, watching an interview you did and uh, a funny story about your first Halloween. We just went through Halloween. You should share this with our audience. <laughs> yeah, that was a little later in life, but still equally embarrassing. My first Halloween that I was living in a place where kids come to trick or treat, these kids come to our, our home. I was living with some roommates and they mumble something. Halloween's not celebrated in India. No one knows what that is. Uh, and they mumbled something. I mean, what they were saying was to, uh, trick, or treat. trick or treats. And I had no idea what they were saying. But imagine if you didn't know anything about this, they're mumbling something and they put a bag of chocolates in front of you. What do I do? I put my hand in and take some chocolates out. <laughs> and the kids start screaming and crying. And, and the mother is standing at the end of the driveway, like thinking we're a bunch of jerks, right? I mean, because like, you know, yeah, 20 year old. And my roommates are just howling behind me, like, dude, you're supposed to give them chocolates, not supposed to take chocolates. But I will tell you, I, I really made some very good friends. Some of them are my friends to this day. Um, I worked really hard um, to study computer science uh, and electrical engineering at Dartmouth. The, the, the program was really good. I mean, there weren't many distractions because it's the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. So like all I did was hang out with my friends and, and, and did the work that I needed to played squash, some of these sports I really got to like during those years, and then came to the Silicon Valley in the early 1990s. And that's uh, where my, my tech career started at Apple. Yeah, so talk about that. Obviously, you were there in the very early days. I guess Jobs had left, though, probably by the time you got there. Yeah, Jobs had gotten fired. I mean, listen, first off, I was fascinated by the math. Dartmouth was one of the first colleges to invest in a personal computer in every room in the dorm, and they were Macs. So Apple had a tremendous ex uh, exposure at the Dartmouth campus. I remember hauling my, fir my first Mac Plus to my room, uh, being able to connect it. And I loved the operating system. I loved HyperCard. I loved everything about the Apple. So I, you know, it was kind of like a dream to go and work at Apple. Mm -hmm. Now in the late 1980s, Mike, uh, sorry, Steve had gotten fired from, from, uh, from Apple. Um, and these were the wilderness years. I think Mike Spindler was the CEO uh, but Apple was still sort of this iconic company. I mean, they were getting, you know, overrun by Microsoft Windows at that early time in the 1990s. Windows 3 was coming out. Microsoft had kind of, you know, taken all the good ideas out of, of, of Apple and building their own Windows operating system that was taking over. But, you know, I'd say Steve's legacy, Steve Jobs' legacy and the aura of Steve still was at Apple. I mean, so many things that I remember during those four years learning from engineers and I was the youngest kid in the block engineer, software engineer. They would say, this is what Steve taught us to do. Or, this is how Steve did things. I mean, we were in a, um, in a, a particular building, um, you know, that was one of the Apple buildings where everything was, you know, we designed it to be a certain color. And there was a special grand piano in that atrium of that building where all hands meetings were held. And, and, and people told me Steve was the one who got that because he was really into making sure that the presentations were artistic. And you remember when he launched one of the Macs, he had a violinist. And so it was so much about the artistic design 
um, that I learned there uh, at, at, during my years at Apple, which still stay with me. And some of those fundamental principles, even though the project I was working on at Apple for those four years went nowhere, I learned a ton. I mean, there were some yeah. remarkable engineers. Um, and that's the kind of the story of life, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you fail. Um, I think what, what's really remarkable about this country uh, is the spirit of entrepreneurship in America. If you fail, you learn from it and you move on. You don't dwell in it. And hopefully the second time you fail, you don't repeat it a third time. If you fail three times, then there's, you know, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the second company I was involved in a bit after I came back. I went, you know, after four years, I felt this project was not going anywhere. And I went back to Harvard Business School to get my MBA. Uh, but I decided to come back to the Bay Area and, you know, talk a little later about some of the things I did at Alpha Blocks, which was a different yeah, So you started, you started your own company when you came back the second time? Uh, uh, it wasn't quite the my own company. I okay. joined as, as uh, one of the founder circle of a company that had begun uh, already. So I wasn't literally the founder, but okay. there's um, several of us. I was the first product manager there. It was a company trying to build analytical applications. And, and for me, it was my first foray into being in a startup, like being one of the first 10, 15, 20 people building a product from scratch, taking something from zero million in revenue to, I mean, 20, 25 and just, you know, every customer, you're a no-name brand, like going from Apple to Alpha Blocks. And right. the only thing in common that was it starts with letter A. No one had heard of us. So you have to earn, you learn the discipline of how to pitch a product, how to build demos. For me, you know, being this freshly minted Harvard MBA, it was enormously humbling to just start something from scratch and see how difficult it is for a life of an entrepreneur, but how rewarding it can be. It's literally like a baby. Uh -huh. taking something from scratch and, and having no safety net. So again, lost, learned a lot, even though that company didn't uh, make it big. I mean, ultimately sold to IBM. Um, those four years, just like my four years at Apple in the 90s were enormous learning experiences for what I would do later. I don't give up very easily, but when you're kind of four years into something and you don't feel it's really going someplace, I felt, okay, time for me to think about something different. So uh, it's always a hard you know, kind of thing to walk away from, especially in a company like Apple Blocks, where you're doing. So I, it was a tremendous, good experience. Again, tremendous, great friendships um, earned. That's always a story. If something fails, you take away from this friendships that hopefully last forever. Yeah. Because many of those talented people are people that I'm still in touch with, whether it's on Facebook or other forums. Some of them I work later on. Some of them join me at SAP or at Informatica. So the journey continues. Yeah, uh, like, I like this run. saying, I mean, Sanjay, your network is your net worth. And I, I firmly so believe true. this. And yeah. I, I can see so your uh, network alive every day on your posts on social. You probably get more comments and likes. No, I and... think it's a, it's a, it's a joy. I sought to, you know, really, you know, be a, 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 you know, my tent is large. I don't, I mean, I am competitive and sometimes that competitive streak does make me some enemies. But even then, as I've gotten older, I've tried to kind of really be more diplomatic about how I think, I think if you look at some of the things I used to do when I was younger, even four, eight years ago, are things I wouldn't do today. So you learn from all yeah. of these things, but it's life is lar is great when you have a large tent and you don't really, you know, uh, make enemies easily. I would agree. And I think the part of it is, is you never know where a single interaction or a single friendship yeah. may take I mean, you in life. I mean, listen, don't hire somebody that you may not be working for someday is one of the principles I live by, right? So I, I got to talk to you about, uh, given that I'm a CEO of a German company and I've been uh, neck deep in uh, the German culture and uh, you know the German way of doing business, I, I have to share uh, maybe some time with you about your experience working for the largest German software company in the world. 
Can you talk a little bit about uh, yeah. what it was like there and what you learned there? Absolutely. I mean, SAP in 2006 when I joined them, so this is, you know, several years after I'd left, uh, sorry, I'd, I'd been in Informatica at Symantec and then now at SAP. Um, Shai Agassi, who was uh, president of products there, you know, incredibly smart um, Israeli uh, engineering, uh, you know, person who was running products there, you know, SAP had acquired his company was really starting to create a stir with a number of senior people from Silicon Valley who were joining SAP and turning around a lot of the perception that, oh, this was a company that wasn't innovating, or all they did was ERP. And I sensed that if SAP got their act together in analytics, which is really kind of what I was passionate about from Alphablox Informatica, they would really make it tough for everybody else. And I saw their interest in doing that, and they saw in me, um, you know, the potential to bet behind me to go and make that happen. Um, but the one thing I did learn in that, because we were based in Palo Alto, actually exactly across the street from VMware. Right. So I joked that 16 years I spent on either side of Hillview Avenue in Palo Alto, so eight years at SAP and then eight years across the street at VMware. But one of the pieces of advice that, that I got as I joined, because most people said, forget it, you're not going to be successful at SAP because it's a very German-centric culture and um, it's, it's impossible for someone in the U.S., to, to either fit in or be successful unless you're living in Germany. And one of the things, advice, advice I gave was, listen, just in the first 12 months, 12, 24 months, just spend enough time in Waldorf, which is the head, headquarters of SAP Germany and get to know, uh, you know, 30, 50, some of the key German leaders, uh -huh. um, understand how they work. I mean, they are extremely smart engineering wise. They have process as their kind of the North star of how they've built things. And, you know, I mean, they're not sort of the swashbuckling, you know, perception of American executives often who sometimes they may say are empty suits. They're just sales and marketeers who don't really have engineering content. Now, it did help that I'm not sort of, a, you know, the typical American, I'm Indian. So in some senses, they looked at me different than perhaps the average uh, American tech executive. Uh, and I just spent a fair amount of time on Lufthansa 454. It was the <laughs> flight that went from San Francisco to, to Frankfurt and uh, then take the hour there. And I spent, uh, I got to know some incredible people. And I'll tell you, I mean, one of my German friends told me this, uh, which is sort of stay true this guy. It takes us a long time to trust and get to know people. We're not superficial. Hey, how you doing? And then walk away. I mean, we are like, you know, we really want to spend time know that you're authentic, you're not superficial. But once we trust you, I mean, you are friends with us for life. You can come stay at our home. We got your back. And it really taught me something. I mean, that's really- the uh, That's a very that. interesting. I mean, so I took over uh, Agile as the CEO from a founder who spent 20 years building this company. And the, uh, the year uh, of succession, we, I followed him around and we talked a lot about values and how he got the company to where it is. And we codified the values because he'd actually never written them down and really articulated them out loud in English. And so the very first uh, value that we agreed on was trust. So yeah. it very much uh, aligns with what you, you're talking about. You know, about. The, uh, the Japanese have a saying, trust is takes 99 years to, to earn uh, and one second to destroy. Exactly. <laughs> and I think there's some truth to that. You know, it is the ultimate human currency. And people, you know, once they trust you, they'll, you know, it's the same way very much in Indian culture. And again, nothing against our American culture. I mean, we, 
sometimes maybe are a little transactional. But, you know, I think even if you go to the Midwest and parts of the United States where, you know, people are more kind of spending time with the, those sort of family values, that's very similar. So I actually loved it. I learned a lot. I got to tell you, there is no company better than SAP in terms of its European, you know, uh, gravitas. I mean, okay. European customers swear by, I mean, they, they are the de facto name in Germany, but much of, you know, you can go up Switzerland, or, right? it, they are embedded in almost so much of the European uh, tech uh, scene. And then, you know, they were reasonably successful in, uh, in the US and Latin America and Asia. So I learned a lot and I was very fortunate to work with probably one of the best CEOs I've ever worked for, Bill McDermott. And I would say that, you know, uh, most of my life has been in product jobs, 50, 60% of jobs. I'm an engineer by training and I kind of lean towards product and product management and capability side. But the four years I spent working for Bill in the second half of my career at SAP, I was there for eight years, uh, four years on the product side, four years on the go-to-market side. Everything I learned about selling, I, I joke with Bill, I learned at the McDermott University. I mean, it's he was one of the most incredibly inspirational people to learn how to sell effectively. And for those of us who have been in product type of jobs uh, and have never sold, never carried a bag, you need someone like this, that, that, like that, that you can learn from. Uh, and I never remember, never forget the first time, I mean, he lined a bunch of us product people to give a presentation to his sales teams on various different aspects of the product. And at the end of that, he pulled me aside and said, hey, you were the best of all these people, but you're in the wrong job. You should come and join me in the sales team. <laughs> and I, I said, Bill, I don't want to be traveling 70, 80%. I have a three-year-old daughter. My wife and I have twins on the way. I just don't have time. He says, no, no, don't worry about it. It's not going to be 70% travel, but I need an answer by, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. I need an answer by Friday because I'm leaving on an international trip on Saturday. So I made a couple of calls and everybody said, the opportunity to learn from Bill is going to be a chance of a lifetime. You should take it. Uh, so come Friday or Saturday, I called him and said, okay, I'm in. I don't know what I'm jumping into. Uh, and the next four years were just like, I mean, it was extremely humbling. I remember my first forecast call and how humbling it was because I'd never done a forecast call, know what to say and not say. And not. But I learned quickly. And to learn under the tutelage of a great leader like that, for me, was fantastic. So those eight years, even with all the ups and downs and the you know things I learned were tremendous. We built an incredible business at SAP. Uh, a significant part of the growth of SAP from 10 to 20 billion were the products my teams are working on, whether it was analytics. Uh, we, 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 we brought out HANA to the market that, that enormously helped was successful in those years, years in big data. We got in the mobile space. So all of those sort of platform products became the next wave of growth for SAP from 10 to 20. Uh, 20 billion, and that was a tremendous run and a tremendous learning. Experience. So, so Sanjay, let's talk about uh, how you ended up on the other side of the road. I uh, I remember very clearly your keynote that you gave in Cleveland. You talked about one of your other mentors from Harvard Business School, Clay Christensen, and you talked about his theories around disruptive innovation and kind of the, the uh, ha having the uh, the willingness to disrupt your own uh, business lines and. Obviously, uh, VMware has disrupted an entire industry, right? And uh, so there must have been something that caught your eye uh, as you pulled into the parking lot on across the street when you joined VMware. Can you talk a little bit about why you joined them? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, you know, um, in 2012, 2013, Pat Gelsinger and Joe Tucci, who was chairman of the board, had been talking to me for several months about possibly joining VMware. And I didn't sense 
or know whether VMware is serious about end user computing. So it took me some time to get a sense as to, because it's a data center company, um, I wanted to assess that if I was going to leave SAP, that you know the, the, the end user computing business was, was, I don't know, it was just two or 300 million. So it was a very small part of the company's revenue. And I needed to get a sense from both of them, both the CEO and chairman of the board, that they were committed. And um, we you know, felt like mobile was going to be a key part to where the industry needed to move. This was five or six years after the iPhone had come out. Uh, companies like AirWatch and Mobile Iron were doing really well in the market in 2012, 2013. And I felt like virtual desktops were an important key piece, but weren't the only piece. Uh, and I felt like VMware had conceded a lot of ground to Citrix and a variety of other small companies by not pursuing that space. So my key question to both of them, uh, and to some extent the management team before I joined was, are you serious about end-user computing or are you not? And if you are, I'd be delighted to join. I'm going to learn as much as you are and, and will organically and then inorganically through partnerships, try and create a big business. So I got a good sense from both of them uh, and the board of VMware that they were you know, put a good plan together and we would support you. And one of those elements was, you know, the biggest acquisition at that time that VMware had ever done, which was AirWatch. And that changed uh, really, it put a really an adrenaline shot behind VMware's end user computing business. I think it shook up the industry. It showed the world that we were serious. Now, listen, 1.5 billion today is nothing. I mean, people would be like, oh, it's a small acquisition given types of M&A deals that are being done. But at that time, we had bought Nicera for 1.2 billion, I think in 2011, 2012, before I joined. This was, I mean, having the biggest acquisition ever done by VMware in an area that's not VMware's prime focus was saying a lot. So I'm very grateful to Joe and Pat and the board and the management team for supporting us. And then we put a team together and those next, again, you know, I reflect on the next four years that I was involved in the end user computing business, you know, hiring some really good talent that now are key leaders at VMware are running that business, you know, from a variety of companies, Mobile Iron, Citrix, uh, good technologies. These were, and then of course, many people from VMware stepped up. Uh, I learned a ton. They've stepped in and did a lot of good work. This was a dream team, it really was. And we had a ton of fun, you know, really growing the business significantly, uh, making plan. I mean, the AirWatch team brought like this sort of energy level that was so obvious in Atlanta. If you go to that trading floor in Atlanta, I mean, I mean, just like, I, I just got energy being around those young people. All of them were often young kids out of Georgia Tech or uh, Georgia, you know, the University of Georgia or Georgia State. I mean, just like that, that, that room brought energy. And I, I just fed off that. So it was a really good four, four years doing that part before I became CEO of VMware. Yeah, so that was very fun to watch that chapter. Obviously, I was, that's where I got to know you. And uh, yeah, it was fun to watch. Uh, what was a very sort of haggard, you know, uh, set of acquisitions and strategies and watch you come in and build a plan and execute on a plan. And I'll never forget the other piece of the Cleveland thing. I think you had our chief, my chief of staff, Nicole actually ended up booking your flight. It was a super secret flight to Atlanta, if I remember correctly. And is that right? Okay. <laughs> it was well, pretty Nicole funny. Know more about that. So, uh, no, I, I, I had to keep any trip to Atlanta you know, for one, I mean, the, the AirWatch didn't want their employees knowing about it. And I just did not want the press finding out that I was talking to AirWatch. Uh, yeah. That took several months to kind of incubate. So Nicole, if you help me with that, I appreciate it. I, I forgot that part of the story, yeah. but it was, uh, if that did happen, it was uh, remarkable. It was, yeah. uh, no, it was really good. And I think, listen, you always look at life in sort of learning and teaching mode. 
Um, I learned so much. I did not know much about virtual desktops. I knew about end user computing, mobile capabilities, um, you know, in part of what I was running at SAP. So I learned a ton. And the most important thing was both in the people that who stepped up within VMware and the people who came from the outside, whether they were the founding team of, of AirWatch or the people who joined us from Citrix or Mobile Iron or Good Technologies, they were remarkable people. I mean, I personally recruited like dozens of them. And, and I just loved, I mean, these were really good people, really good talented people, mm -hmm. like the best of the best at those companies. And to just put that, you know, what would people think was a motley crew? How could you get people from AirWatch and Mobile Iron and Good and Citrix all working together? We did. No, I remember and you, that's uh, what a great team. you recruited some people out of Citrix that was a shock, right? That had been there a long time. And that was purely on your vision and your charisma. So, uh, so I know we're gonna we're gonna run short on time, Sanjay. So I want to ask you about security. I know we see you. I turn on TV and I see you regularly. So congratulations on. I'm no Jim Cramer, but uh, fun to uh, have you on. I want to talk to you about security because obviously at VMware, when you became the COO, I know you architected this carbon black acquisition, and you know, you have a lot of insights and um, thoughts on security. And so I'd love to just pick your brain and hear you know, where you think security is going in the future and kind of how, I know you just joined a board uh, that's in the security space, Sync, uh, with this Peter McKay company. So love to talk to you just sort of like broad, broad strokes on what you see relative to security and where that's going. Yeah, I think, listen, my uh, view was that you know, I'd been spent some time at Symantec, so I uh, and you know ran the GRC governance risk and compliance business also at SAP. So I had been exposed some to security, um, but as I got more into the mobile security area of things with end user computing, it was very clear that that was headed towards more and more aspects of security. So I spent more time understanding, you know, what were uh, you know the big security companies doing, whether it was Palo Alto and network security. Uh, an emerging area of next-gen and security companies, Carbon Black, CrowdStrike, and others, identity and access players, whether it's Microsoft or Okta, uh, emerging sort of cloud security web gateway companies like Zscaler, and even you know companies that were revolutionizing things like content delivery networks like Cloudflare that were starting to get more and more into security. Um, and in studying those companies, I kind of developed a point of view of where I believe the security industry was going and what VMware's role could be in that. And that was fantastic work. And it's never like, it's sort of the same way they can use a computing. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I love learning and I love studying, but I'm always doing it with somebody else who's smarter than me in the security. So in that case, Tom Corn was, he's a good friend of mine. He was really savvy on security. He'd been in the industry longer than me. Uh, and very similar to the names that we talked about in the end user computing uh, team, you know, um, um, that joined me from those other companies. I learned from Tom, but then together we would be like iron sharpening iron, sort of refining the strategy. And, you know, then I would just talk to a lot of CEOs or uh, heads of products or engineering at those companies, because in many cases we want to partner uh, with many of them, um, whether it was startup or, or bigger companies. And I, I learned so much in the last three, four years in the security industry and where it's going. Uh, that point of view ended up uh, convinced, uh, helping us convince the board that we should make the appropriate move. Um, you know, there were a few assets that were really doing well in endpoint security. We developed that strategy. I'm not going to go over it again, but it's all publicly documented. And we acted on that, uh, acquired Carbon Black. And kind of when I look back now and where I stand today as I'm helping security companies, I've just joined the board of SNCC, as you said. Peter McKay used to work for me at VMware, a big fan of his. 
Uh, and you know, this is another pillar now of security, developer security. After SolarWinds, I became convinced that the next frontier was protecting you know, source code. It's like having an extra machine to understand what's really going on inside your body uh, that could be an early detection to potentially cancer as opposed to having to react to it later on. Uh -huh. And developer security and kind of understanding vulnerabilities in source code, this was the one company that was revolutionizing things that could prevent. So I think SNCC has all the opportunity to be the next crowd strike of Palo Alto in developer and application security. Uh, loved what they were doing, millions of developers gravitating to that platform. And that's just one example. Uh, I, you know, just earlier today was talking to Director Jen Easterly, who is the director of the CISA, uh, uh, you know, cybersecurity uh, agency of the Biden administration. She's doing some remarkable work and the public, sorry, the private sector companies are all helping her. So I think there's a, this is one where, you know, my sort of key headline statement is this, right? Today, people think of cybersecurity and its threats. It's certainly a boardroom topic as having economic impact when there's a breach. Okay, you get breached and somebody's gonna, at the end of this, some hacker or cyber criminal is gonna hold you responsible ransomware and will want millions of dollars in Bitcoin. Okay, that's economic. But imagine a scenario very similar to what happened in the 1980s in India with a company, a company called Union Carbide that unfortunately allowed a spill a bunch of chemicals that cost tens of thousands of lives uh, you know, because of some accidental error in Union Carbide in a, in a city called Bhopal in India. We all in India know that incident if you were living in the 1980s. It was almost as bad as Chernobyl, uh, Chernobyl in, in Russia. Um, this, that type of incident could happen today uh, through a hack. You wanna be able to protect yourself from that. I mean, cybersecurity is at the source of a lot of operational systems that could potentially bring down planes. So I think that security will be one of those things that we don't take seriously today. It was, it is not just economic impact. There could be lives impacted right. too, and we certainly don't want I think that to happen. A, I mean, God forbid we have a 9/11 type of incident because of a security. Yeah, hack. it's a matter of national security. I think we see that with the number of uh, security sort of events that have happened in the White House just in the last few months, right? Like you said, it's, it's become sure. a, a major priority for everyone. And the only thing that's growing faster than, you know, investment in security companies is the investment the bad guys are putting right. in uh, bad security. Yeah, well, I so see I the, mean, we got to keep investing. Two places. I'm a big fan in five or six companies that are biggest companies. I shared this in, I think, my last appearance on Yahoo Finance, the five or six. It's on one of my tweets of the five or six public companies that I track closely that I think they're all doing well. And the biggest of them will probably be Microsoft over time. Um, uh, but then there's a bunch of small companies, Snick being one of them, that is going to be, and I think this is a tremendous ground for investment. If you are a venture capitalist or you're an entrepreneur, this is going to be the gift that keeps on. This doing. is the disruptive innovation. I agree with you. Well, I know we're going to run out of time. So I want to talk to you about the most important thing, right? Which is values and leadership. And, and one thing, I guess, that uh, as a guy who kind of came to Silicon Valley from India and you look around at some of the biggest and best companies, Google, Microsoft, led by uh, Indian Americans, I mean, there has to be some common uh, leadership traits, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. I mean, how, how is it that uh, it must be inspiring to you to see that? And um, it's part of, I guess, the American dream, but is, the, is there some common leadership trait or work ethic? What do you think it is that's propelling these individuals into these, into these important roles? These are the most important companies in the world, right? 
I mean, here's the deal. Uh, I have tremendous respect for these people. You know, Satya Nadella is a very good friend of mine. Shantanu, he's CEO of Microsoft. Everyone knows him. Shantanu, Ryan, and CEO Adobe. They're both mentors to me. Uh, Sundar Pichai, I don't know him as well, but know him okay at Google. He's also a wonderful person. So all of these Indian entrepreneurs, uh, I would say, you know, part of what I, is a common thread is they're, they're humble and hungry. There's something Gandhian about them in the sense that they, you know, their gravitas is their brain, not their ego. And they have a tremendous, you know, comfort in just hiring people who are smarter than them. They're extremely ambitious. They wouldn't be where they are if they weren't that way, hardworking. But it's a different type of, you know, they're not the Steve Jobs type of personality. They're extremely successful. Uh, I mean, Microsoft, you know, Satya Nadella, I mean, he's running the company that's the biggest market cap in the world. I think his name, his last name is going to go down in Indian uh, business history, just as important as Birla and Tata and Ambani and some of the big Indian uh, business icons. I told him that. So, but, you know, and, and what I've sought to also do is sort of, I've, uh, you know, is model my own learnings. I've talked about this publicly, whether you call it servant leadership, which I've used, uh, you know, having a growth mindset, which is what Satya does. Um, you're always kind of trying to say, listen, you know, I got to be humble and hungry because there's a whole body of work or a set of things that I don't know that I got to learn. And if there's one thing that's that's true about tech is you are one step from being just humble and stuff that you don't know, because it's just evolving. I mean, look at I mean, just to give you one example, you look at the open source community and the number of projects that like every time I see, you know, an open source name of another project, I'm like, where did that come from? I mean, Kubernetes wasn't around five years ago. Right. And then you name it, you know, Hadoop. I mean, Spark, Kafka. I mean, you, so, so the tech world is changing, changing so rapidly. And if you don't have a learning mindset to surround yourself with people who know more than you or have a voracious desire to learn, you just get left behind. And I just find as I, you know, gotten older and busier, I can't do all of that learning and reading myself. So if I can have a set of people who are the domain experts in a particular area, where I can say, hey, listen, um, you know, can I take you out to lunch? And I've just come into to that meeting with like 50 questions I have that I'll pay for lunch, but during that lunch, I'm learning. Now, typically right. what's happened is like, you know, they want to learn something from me too. And this is how life is. You give and you take and you give and you take. And if you're just taking, you're not a great person. You have to give. And I think this whole idea of learning and teaching and learning and teaching is what makes the world go around. And I'm, you know, I hope that this this session here that we're doing doesn't come across as a monologue because hopefully somebody who watches it is inspired to teach somebody else or give me feedback on what I could do better. This is Jed, how life is, man. And that's uh, what I seek to be doing until the day I drop red. I'll tell you something. They say something about retired people. Um, often um, they age much faster after they retire because they don't keep their intellect, their brain going. The brain's almost like a muscle just as important as our, you know, our quads and our triceps and everything else. You got to keep the brain going. And I respect a lot of older people who are still intellectually engaged. They don't let that part of them dry. And if you can keep that learning mindset going, what can you learn? And then once you've learned it, try to teach somebody else what you just learned. That'll be the test is whether you learned it. Right. Uh, I think that's Applying. a great way to live life. So uh, one thing that makes you stand out, Sanjay, from a lot of leaders is that you're very open about your faith and uh, you know, you're a Christian in Silicon Valley and uh, you're, you're not shy about it. A lot of people in, you know, don't talk about their faith openly in business. 
And, and so I'd like to talk, just dig in briefly, you know, how that served you, how you balance that, and maybe a little bit about, you know, you worked for another uh, individual that's also rare in Silicon Valley, Pat Gelsinger, who's written books about balancing faith and family and business. So can you talk a little bit about being a Christian in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, listen, from my perspective, it's pretty simple. Um, it, it, you know, my faith and my, you know, worship of God um, has changed my life. It's given me a purpose. It's given me a sense of direction. Uh, and I'm very vocal about all the aspects of that at church and in my, you know, circle of people who, now that said, what does that faith do to me in my workplace? It changes the way I act. It's how I treat people. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, kiss up to people above them and they kick down to people below them. And, you know, you can tell often how people treat people by how you watch them treat the receptionist as they walk into the building. Uh, are you going to be different to that receptionist than to the person? So my faith teaches me to be humble and to treat everybody. The person I worship was, was actually taught, was more a friend of the poor people than the rich. He was born in a manger and he didn't hang out with kings. I mean, there's so much about the story um, about Jesus that's so remarkable, right? That, that teaches you humility in a first way. And you, when you think you've understood humility, you got to understand more of it. Um, so I, I, that aspect changes the way in which I act, the way I live, do unto others as other people have done to you. There's so much about the principles of how you live uh, and especially the treating of people. Uh, and now listen, then do you need to go the extra step to be talking about it? You know, you'll, you'll see if you follow me on Twitter, every now and then I'll post a, a verse from the Bible that I like. But even there, I'm careful not to make it something, it's hopefully a verse that can inspire people. Uh, my whole goal in life is to make sure that if I'm coming in to work, I am saying something that can encourage somebody that day. Uh, because the world's full of people who put people down every day. Right? It's just... I mean, it's like you're going into a sharp culture right. and work. And if you could do something to encourage them, and maybe sometimes it's somebody who says, hey, listen, you know, I'm not a person of faith, but you are. Would you mind praying for my kid who's sick? No problem. And it's things of those kinds that are just practical. So it's a balance um, to never let this be something that is offensive to somebody, but is deeply personal. And to me, most importantly, changes my life. Then uh, it fundamentally has changed my life. And that is the story of who I am. I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for that core faith that drives me every day. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And I guess thank you for the courage to, uh, to put it out there, because I do think that uh, there's an underlying principle there you know, in, in a lot of these uh, teachings. And when I got to stand next to the founder of IGEL back in 2020, taking over uh, as the CEO, we talked about the core values of trust and integrity, innovation and partnership, but I stood on the stage and said, I'm gonna put two additional things out there, right? Servant heart. And this was this idea of, you know, hey, uh, in a selfie world, you know, taking care of each other, taking care of, uh, of our partners and our customers in a selfless way. And of course, well, six Jen, weeks, you, you six, are six exactly. weeks later, uh, you know, we had COVID hit, right? And it was this remarkable, scary moment where, yeah, we really had to lean into into that that value, right? Actually, everybody in the company took a pay cut, so it was like we lived this you know selfless 
uh, concept uh, real. It became very real for a lot of people, um, I think. And then the second concept that I threw out there was believe. And it wasn't so much in, you know, believe in Jesus or believe in a higher spirit. It was really a believe in yourself and what you can accomplish, right, as a, as a human being that can dream big and, and kind of go get those things done. And these two values for IGEL have been very, very uh, important as That's we've great. kind of traversed the last couple of years. Yeah, listen, I would say, uh, I mean, my heart, COVID in this entire year, whether it's in this industry or other industries, it's been really hard. I mean, the hospitality industry has hit hard. Uh, my thoughts go out, certainly if you've had a health issue, but even a job issue, it's it's tough. And we all, what it has taught us the last 12, 18 months is to develop empathy. Um, and if you have a job, reach out to places where you can help others. You know, somebody who just says, hey, listen, can I pick your brain on something I'm thinking about? Make time for that person. Uh, certainly if you're somebody who knows me and, and I could refer you to another place, I'd be delighted to do it. I do that all the time for folks. I'm a reference for many people who might know because I want to see uh, everybody gainfully employed. Uh, I mean, listen, the, the work from home phenomenon, uh, companies like Citrix were the companies who created work from anywhere concepts, you know, Mark Templeton decades ago. And now all of a sudden people are starting to think, well, we can work from anywhere. But these were concepts that companies like Citrix pioneered right. uh, decades a year ago. So I think that this, uh, you know, even if you're not working in a particular company, that concept and that skill set goes on. I mean, you look at Zoom and, um, you know, aspects of what ServiceNow or some security companies are doing or collaboration companies like Slack are doing. So take that skill set. Uh, if you're not currently one of those companies that pioneered this and, move, you know, move into another category, the innovation that's happening in end user computing. When I talk to heads of end user computing and IT who run those divisions, they're just telling me that they're spending, they're getting a license to spend a lot more money on sets of tools that will make people more productive for work from anywhere. Uh, and, you know, it's not just virtual desktop and virtual workspaces and endpoint management and security. It is collaborative tools. Uh, I mean, a whole bunch of tools that make people more productive and also security that needs to be done because work from anywhere means that you've got to have, you know, secure access service edges, a new category that's sort of played out. So I think it's rich possibilities. I'd say what you should take with you are your experiences. Don't let yourself feel down. Uh, don't, don't wallow in that situation. You know, take the time off you need. Maybe sometimes sabbaticals are a little good period. You're right. reaching the holidays anyway. Refresh yourself through Thanksgiving and the holiday time. Come back into January and, and network with a variety of new players where your skill set of everything you've learned, wherever, if you've been laid off. And if you're looking for a career change, but if you're happy the company you're at, pioneer an innovation into new areas because this category, you know, work from anywhere or whatever you want to call it, is just like starting to take off now in a whole new way. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's one side effect of the pandemic that's incredible is I think end user computing is hot again. So take advantage of it. And, uh, you know, and, and I think the skill sets and the knowledge of those customer bases. And then if you're in sales, for example, you're still going to be selling to the same uh, buyers of that technology. It's not like they've gone away. If anything, those people's budgets have gone away, but they're not just buying BDI now. They're buying many other tools. Uh, you have those contexts that are still very valuable to you, whether you're working in any company. So, Jed, this has been great. That's awesome. I've thank you so much. With you. Yeah, thank you very, very much. I, uh, those are great words of encouragement. And uh, yeah, we're grateful to have you on here. Uh, I wish Anytime. you well, and I, uh, I look forward to watching where you end up. I know you're going to be the CEO of a, 
a good sized company some some point and uh, we'll all be watching and, and rooting for you. Wow, that was amazing. That's really what The Attic is all about. Powerful message and uh, I hope you all got a lot out of listening to what Sanjay had to say. And for all our listeners, I just want to say thank you for being part of uh, the community here and stopping by The Attic. We're really super excited about our next guest, Christian Brinkoff. He is a EUC influencer. He's the principal PM and community lead for Windows 365 at Microsoft. He'll probably be the youngest guest that we've had on The Attic and definitely a, a rising star. So it'll be fun to have somebody uh, who has a, a fresh perspective and is on the earlier side of their career uh, as our next guest. So as always, lots of interesting perspectives on tech coming your way on The Attic. Please subscribe to the iGel YouTube channel and you'll get all the alerts about when the next episodes will drop. And so until we meet again, this is Jed Ayers of iGel wishing you a great day, be kind to each other, and be well.